0: Do you, you guys want to keep talking about your, your pain yeah. and then I'll lead us into
1: it? I have to just kind of I have to kind of like preface this this um with I was very very excited when Rob mm-hmm. mentioned that we were doing a episode about Catholicism because uh-huh. you know, your boy grew up Catholic. Um yeah. I did not realize when I was like trying to just like not even really do research, just trying to get myself like more familiar with the, you know, what we were right. talking about and whatnot. How much of this bullshit I've just internalized is just normal and none of this stuff is normal. Absolutely none of it. And I just have to like like finally kind of from the first time in my life taking that step back and realizing like damn like, yeah. like catheters are fucking wacky. It's really funny yeah. how that happens. Cause it's true. It's like yeah. you
2: you go to you go to mass a certain number of times when you're a kid or you know, you go with your family or you go for the holidays or whatever. And before you know it, it's like you're this little sponge, and you've absorbed so much of this, right? So it was funny because I didn't realize how much I remembered about the Bible until I went to college and I started talking to friends, and I was like, "Oh shit, I remember that! Like, I remember that story, and I remember that that fable." And um, it was it's crazy. Like, I, I, um, when we were doing CCD, I don't know what you guys call it. Over, do you guys call it CCD when you prepare for your first communion? um We had a. Do you
0: call it CCD? That's huge in in Boston. Everyone's like, I think I've told this yeah. story before, but like as a kid, people would ask me like, Why don't you have to go to CCD? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what does CCD stand it's just for? Like Catholics. I
2: actually don't remember what it stands for, but it's it's like you you go to school. You go to like once it's a Catholic week. School. It's Catholic school, and you prepare for Sunday your first school. communion and your confirmation. And they teach you did about. Did you have yours
1: at the same? Did you have yours at the same time, or did you have yours at different times?
2: Different times, and so I had uh, my first communion when I was like nine or ten, okay. and then I had my confirmation. When I was yeah, like twelve yeah. with Dan Marino's son. So yeah, with the Dolphins, <laughs> oh, so, you yeah. know, he's just chilling in the back of the church, Dan Marino, probably good, drinking good wine. Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good drunk Italian Catholic over there. Yeah, yeah. but um, no, no, no. What I was gonna say is, I remember watching these crazy videos of like uh, being a virgin and not having forget about having sex about like not kissing anybody you know before you get married and I'm like what, like what the hell is this like it was just really crazy because for me it was always those really interesting messages of you know when you're in these formal settings whether it's ccd or church you get these um you get these messages that are very strict right i remember our priest once was like making a, a public message in front of everybody saying like please remember to like dress respectfully when you come to church and i was like oh like what the hell like he was talking yeah, about you yeah, know yeah, people wearing like that yeah and then you so you hear that message and then you'd see everybody at like the thanksgiving fair just like drunk off their ass like just like <laughs> throwing up behind the the roller coasters and just like you see all the repression coming out when you add like a little bit of that alcohol into it so yeah i don't know i had some interesting times i mean i haven't been to church in a long time but um yeah. yeah when i when i went to college when I, when I yeah you were saying yeah
1: oh no i'm just saying like like exact, like kind of like in one because i don't think i had that now that i think about it because i went to catholic school so you would do your preparation as like a class during like the week or whatever so mm-hmm. you like you would um have what's it called yeah like you'd have like your like religion class would be the and like when yeah. communion was coming up you would then like take the, the hour of religion class mm. and then you would then go to do the like activities to then you know prepare for that so that's why i think i don't know what ccd is oh in that's Italian interesting school yeah
2: yeah so for us it was like it was like monday night or wednesday night you'd go after school it was like monday an hour night catholicism yeah it was like that it was like monday night football. Yeah. <laughs> and uh it was crazy because i mean you know that was that was when I was a teenager and actually at around the same time as when I ha- began to have like Jewish friends and Baptist friends and all sorts of Protestant American friends. And, you know, I, I was getting invited to like bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs like at school. And I remember, you know, uh, one of my friends uh, invited me to their church, but they weren't Catholic. They were just Protestant, I guess. And um, my mom was like wait so where are you going and i said oh I'm, you know i'm gonna go to this thing that they have a pizza night and you get to watch football and they have a band and whatever <laughs> and my mom's like what the fuck is that she's like that's a, what does that have to do with being religious and i'm like i don't know but they're inviting me
1: where's the suffering <laughs>
2: yeah exactly and she's like wait who, who's leading this and i'm like this guy's name is pastor matt and it was like Pastor, like what the fuck? Like, what the fuck is a pastor? And then so then like the you know she father. Why, why does he Monsignor sit backwards
0: in his or? chair? They're supposed to sit frontwards. Yeah, and
2: and then they um they drove me over, and you know I'm, I'm we're pulling up, and she's dropping me off at this church that's like right close to my house, and she says, "Well, you know." If they start talking to you about God and, and Jesus, just run away. Just call me. Just like leave. Like, just, like you know, if they try to like convert you to their weird cults, just like leave. And I'm like, okay, mom, don't worry. And I just show up, and it's a bunch of my friends eating pizza <laughs> and playing regime. video games. No. <laughs> and like Pastor Matt, is yeah, just kind of like took just bite somewhere of pizza doing and something pressed,
0: like BBA. Uh, yeah, on Super <laughs> you were converted to Protestantism. It's it's irreversible. Oh yeah, airborne. you bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my god. Uh, yeah, I think we can I think I, I think can, I think you guys have have yeah. proven your credentials here on this yeah. uh for this I just want to say oh, one we got last a lot. thing cuz I was looking
1: yeah. I was looking up because there is something really specific about this with 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 euthanasia that comes up with the with mm-hmm. the uh the Catholic Church taking very strong strong stand later on in the episode. Maybe we cover it, I don't know, but mm-hmm. this just shows that how like just brain like just how my brain was just molded into all this bullshit is that then i did not know what euthanasia was but yet you continuously pray for it every single week that like you know pray <laughs> for you know against euthanasia i thought they literally meant like children in asia like youth in Asia. <laughs> 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 so i remember just like one day after mass i would ask my mom like you know i'm like nine years old i'm like mom why do we keep praying for all the kids in asia she's like what the fuck are you talking about i'm like euthanasia. she's like no that's when you like that's when you like put someone under and you kill them i'm like oh okay. that's hilarious that didn't seem to like ring in my head that that worth be like needed to be prayed for in oh my She'll god asia
0: and this um i know almost nothing about catholicism so i in, not in any sense that i'm leading you at all but like I you guys are Dante and I'm Virgil in the sense that I'm just some old pagan guy who's here along for the ride. <laughs> like everything you guys say, I'm just gonna be like, yeah, damn, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it it is. It's gonna get wild. Welcome everyone to a very special edition of Corner Spati. That's right. It's the big dog hour. <laughs> 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 um No, we have a we have a I'm very excited for the episode today. We have uh, a lot planned for you, um, and that's because we have a very special guest. Um, you may have you may know him already if you're familiar with my with the uh, with uh, the Rob Extended Universe. That is um, one <laughs> of my one of my best friends and, and colleagues, uh, Ricardo Alvarez Pimentel, PhD candidate at Yale University, historian of Mexico, um, the the right, the Catholic right. Um, the international networks of um religion and politics, um, and much more. Co-host of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Um Ricky, what's up?
2: Hi Rob, hi everybody.
0: You? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Nick's here too. You already did the woof woof. You oh right okay, yeah, sorry.
2: <laughs> so I want to say um, hi to Rob just and, saying, Nick you know, and you know, Rob, yeah.
1: it's your first time introducing the show because I let you. Um uh so Next time, just so you know, you introduce us and then the guest. God, you know, common, common, common <laughs> etiquette. Ricky,
0: Ricky's uh, uh, basically a co-host. He's, he's one of yeah, us. This Come r- on. Wrong show. I'm the co-host.
1: He's the guest. <laughs> this, this is an episode well, for your other well, show. We'll see about that. If so, then you have to edit it. I'm not editing it.
0: Um, so, yeah, today we're going to... Um, ma- maybe Ricky can can give like his uh, academic expertise and how this how this episode is going to go. But basically what we've cooked up is like a review of like 20th century Catholicism and politics, especially right wing politics. And what are the connections between basically what forms do right wing politics take? Um, How is that expressed through religion? How is that um, done or organized by the Catholic Church or right wing Catholic networks? Um, And then a more like theoretical or broader level, like what does it mean to think about ideas of change, of political revolution, and how does Catholicism and how does religion fit into that? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Is there anything you want to add to that, Ricky?
2: So uh, so let me start just by formally saying thank you to both of you for having me here as, <laughs> as the guest on the show. So thanks to Nick and Rob, and also saying hi to all the listeners that are out there. Uh, some of you might know me from, as Rob mentioned, uh, our other podcast, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. But this is my first time here, hopefully not my last. And it's exciting to just uh, speak to a new audience about these issues. I know that Rob and I just formally did an episode on fascism that was uh, published about maybe two weeks ago now. So it'll be interesting if you are hearing this episode and you want to check out our podcast uh, to just uh, click on there. and It's the latest episode that should be up there to see how these uh, issues of Catholicism that we're going to be talking about connect to broader conversations about fascism, and as Rob mentioned, right-wing politics in the 20th century. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you both for having me. Um, yeah, so uh, I think there's a lot for us to talk about in this this uh, discussion about Catholicism in the 20th century and how it intersects with politics. So I think I'll just begin by talking a little bit about my own work and what I... I'm studying and, and basically writing my right. dissertation about right now. And then we'll just I'll see what... we do a little preface, actually. Yeah, yeah go, because, yeah, go ahead. Because,
0: uh, you know, we're supposed to be European politics and European history. And I promise we got the heavy hitters of 20th century post-war Catholicism coming up, uh, including one man I like to call Polish Obama. Um, but I, I think that... Um,
1: uh, Even if it is so that like Latin America, or whatever, like the co- the Catholic Church is one of like the biggest arbiters of imperialism. Yeah, it fits fine. It's European. It's all you know what. It's all connected. You know, it's, it's entanglement. Yeah, exactly. We don't apologize because you know we're reaching over you know into other countries to discuss something that then like. Europe is still at the helm of. Yeah. So. But I just
0: wanted to um introduce what, what Ricky's gonna talk about because um I think he's gonna go into the Mexican Revolution and the Cristero War, and it might sound kind of uh, you know, very like locally specific or regionally specific, but all the dynamics we're gonna talk about throughout this episode I think are all present in this example and it's first in the chronology. So it's really like I don't know, maybe the birth
2: mm-hmm. of a I don't know, um yeah,
0: of all of this. So yeah, take yeah. it away.
2: Sure. No, thank you. And I mean, um, one of the things that I think we're going to emphasize throughout this episode is that these are as much global conflicts as they are um, national conflicts and even regional conflicts. So it'll be really interesting how, you know, not just Europe, but other parts of the world continue to come back into our conversation. And so one of the things, so on that point... Uh, one of the things that my work does—it's it, a transnational history, right? And Rob and I discussed this in the first episode of our podcast. What what is transnational history versus global history, et cetera? Basically, transnational history is, is a history that looks at processes that transcend that transcend borders that don't really know national boundaries, but that still uh, affect national developments. So. Not just, you know, m- maybe something like immigration, for example, could be part of transnational history, globalization, uh, economic flows, uh, cultural dynamics, religion, imperialism, all that could fit into transnational history. And so, uh, and what transnational history tries to do is it tries to really challenge and question the idea of the nation state and how much it, it's actually a national history versus just something that's happening throughout the world. So, what I study is basically uh, kind of the Mexican. Uh, version of a broader movement that's happening around the world not just in Latin America but also in the U.S. and Europe especially in, in, in the, the Catholic world in the 20th century is going through a lot of really important conversations and changes. So my work um, is transnational history of counter, what I call counter-revolutionary Mexico so the Catholic opposition to the Mexican revolution. Specifically I study the relationship between Mexico the United States and Spain because I think uh, those two countries, specifically the us and Spain, are very much relevant to anything that happens in Mexico any time in history because they're the kind of the two more powerful influences uh, shaping uh, domestic dynamics, right Spain being the colonizer and the u s being the northern neighbor and the new colonizer after you know, the 19th century. And so my work is looking at these Catholic networks that are trying to forge like a, like a unified opposition to the Mexican Revolution, because the Mexican Revolution is seen as this uh, embodiment of a lot of things that Catholicism was very afraid of, uh, particularly communism. Uh, even though the Mexican Revolution starts in 1910, which is seven years before the Soviet Revolution of 1917, uh, the new constitution in Mexico, the 1917 constitution, draws from a lot of European socialist influences, a lot of Bismarckian influences... And with the Soviet Revolution happening in the background of this, too, uh, there's a fear by the Catholic Church that these two revolutions happening together um, could lead to the spread of communism around the world, right? And so, Rob and I did another episode on this, on revolutions, so you should check it out if you have a chance. And so, uh, basically, what happens is that the Catholic Church begins to mobilize in the 1920s, particularly after World War I, they begin to mobilize uh, ideologically, ideologically, They begin to move money and and channel different financial networks to fight different wars throughout the world. And so the Cristero War is one of them. It's kind of like a proxy war, if you want to call it that. I actually argue that it's one of the first kind of Cold War conflicts uh, in the world. And um, the church is basically going to double down on its anti-communist discourse, on its conservatism, and it's going to take a very hardline approach to anything that it considers to be socialist or communistic or something of, the, of, of that sort. So in Mexico, what happens is uh, the revolution, the fighting ends around 1920, well, the, the mass fighting ends around 1920. But because there's this new constitution in power that has all these anti-clerical provisions that is promoting secular public education that is, fashion, that is put forth by the state, that it's limiting the clergy's political power... Uh, it's limiting public worship. The church already, after 1970, begins to funnel a lot of money into Mexico to fund uh, Catholic opponents to the state. Uh, the Mexican government, on the other hand, is very conscious of this. There's a lot of espionage that happens at this time. And they're very worried about what this means for sovereignty. Because even before the revolution, sovereignty was one of the big questions, right? Like, what's going to happen if uh, you know all these foreign capitalist interests uh, you know, get a hold of Mexican resources and land uh, etc right and have also influence in politics so there's already kind of an antagonism taking place and what happens then the crocer rebellion is an explosion of violence when all of these uh, tensions come to a crescendo it lasts for three years but really it's it's kind of one portion of a longer story of counter revolution that actually maybe you know begins in Mexico but then um spreads throughout the world, particularly into places like Spain during the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, uh, other parts of Europe, I'm sure, and um, also parts of the United States and Latin America as well. So my work is basically just tracing the outlines of that and how it connects to the broader world, right? So that's how th- kind of it, it, it's uh, it's moving into this chronology.
0: So, um, So on that point, um, there's a real wikipedia nerd hours but if you ever look up battles or wars on wikipedia mm-hmm. there's like the belligerent section on the side and you get yeah. like the long list we got, of, yeah, we got
1: we got the starting lineup yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, yeah, and
0: you know the whole yeah um and I, th- it used to be there i'm looking right now i think someone removed it but it used to be on the cristero war uh, I guess the English-language Wikipedia. On one side, under the Costeros, was the Knights of Columbus.
1: And you're on the not, other side... It's a specific battle you have to look up. Uh, mm. On the other side, yeah, under the Mexican yeah.
0: government, is the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah. And I would like to clarify, just because yeah, you're batting, talking about... Bat- batting fourth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he's he's the premier hitter. I saw him at the Home Run <laughs> Derby this year, the KKK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And just everything you're talking about, Ricky, like, how does the KKK and Knights of Columbus fit in here? Like, why did they, why does Catholicism, or how does it take on this political issue? Like, I mean, just as one example.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, going back to the triangular relationship that I was talking about between Mexico, Spain, and the U.S., right, so what we have to understand about the Cristo Rebellion in the 1920s is that for many Catholic activists, not just in Mexico, but outside of Mexico— The Cristo Rebellion was seen as kind of like the last best hope of uh, undoing and even toppling the Mexican Revolution and the revolutionary government. Uh, There had been a a, a Catholic-backed counter-revolution earlier during the war in 1914, 1913, 1914, but that was unsuccessful. It only lasted for about a year and a half. And uh, it was was also supported by the U.S. government by Woodrow Wilson. Um, But ever since then, you know, uh, there really hadn't been an organized mass opposition to the revolutionary state. Uh, if anything, the state had been trying to grow its influence and strength. So the Cristo Rebellion, seen as like, okay, maybe this is the last hope, right? So what happens is that a lot of interest groups, some of them religious conservatives, others just capitalist interests in the U.S. and other parts of the world, begin to funnel a lot of money and arms and munitions into the Cristo Rebellion, arming Catholic rebels, right? So the Knights of Columbus, uh, so this first part of the question, The Knights of Columbus being a U.S. Catholic organization, a fraternal society that's founded in the 1880s in New Haven, Connecticut, of all places, which is where Yale is, where I study...
0: powerful energy to that city yeah i know right no i mean like i Gilmore study okay
2: yeah it's where my son was born right <laughs> it was where george w bush was born right all that there's some dark energy around there but there's also some there's also some light it's
0: gonna be the the, yeah. <laughs> the
2: paul atreides of the future catholic uh, empire of the world it's like it's like exegol that's what it is right new haven <laughs> new haven is like that sith planet but basically um <laughs> Uh, it's called Corobon, okay. Get it right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going. Th- I'm going with the Disney Catholic, uh, Catherine Kennedy trilogies here, right? The very much, the very much loved. Well, it's called Morobon, okay. <laughs> Fine, whatever. Yeah. So, um, well, so what happens is the Knights of Columbus are very much an organization that um, is working with these interests because a lot of its members, you know, there's a board, there's a president, there's all these trustees a very powerful people. They're very powerful people in American society, particularly they're involved in banking. They're involved in oil, right? Many of them are based in New York. Others are based in Texas, in the border, right? I mean, if you think about Knights of Columbus, they're kind of like these, um, Irish immigrant descendants because father McGivney, who started this whole thing in the 1880s, I mean, these were like the first waves of Irish, but by the 1920s, we're talking about their children and grandchildren in some cases who have made a very prominent reputation for themselves economically, Right. So they're very powerful players, both in, in the U.S. and the world. So they're moving all this money. And they're also trying to push the U.S. government to intercede and, and intervene on the side of the Cristeros militarily and economically. So they're uh, really uh, pushing the um, who would it be at this point, the Coolidge administration and people like uh, Frank Kellogg, the secretary of state and the ambassador right, Sheffield, and then Morrow, they're really pushing them to either intercede on behalf of the Cristeros, or at the very least, try to come up with some sort of compromise that benefits U.S. oil interests in Mexico. On the flip side, the Knights of Columbus, uh, I mean, sorry, the the KKK, they're, uh, I mean, as we know, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, they've been around also since the late 1800s, and they see this conflict in Mexico and they wanted to end for two reasons. Number one is because they're opposed to any sort of Catholic activism in the U S and they see the Cristal rebellion as kind of strengthening the cause of the Knights of Columbus at home in the United States because the Knights of Columbus, you know, when the Cristal rebellion breaks out, they start organizing labor, they start organizing uh, immigrant communities uh, to kind of uh, fundraise for these uh, efforts and, and to kind of politically mobilize the petition governments. And, the KKK doesn't like that. It doesn't like to see Catholics mobilized for any reason. So they're afraid, number one, that this is going to be something that the knights are going to use to grow their power at home. But number two, they're seeing that the Cristel Rebellion is also influencing a lot of Mexican immigration to the United States. Particularly the 1920s, a lot of these immigrants who are arriving in cities like Chicago, for example, right, where Rob and I met and went to college, uh, California, the Southwest, Pennsylvania, the industrial Midwest, they're coming from the regions that are most affected by the fighting. So the, the KKK is looking at all this and they're saying, well, what is this war? Like, it's, it's basically, you know, feeding into the power of the Knights of Columbus here in the U.S., but it's also bringing all these immigrants from Mexico that we don't want, that we don't like, into, into American territory and American cities. So they're going to oppose the war and they're going to actually petition the U.S. to help the Mexican government so that the war can end as quickly as possible. Right. And as I was mentioning to Rob the other day, um, at that point, the Mexican government is trying to bring Protestant missionaries and Mormon missionaries into Mexico, hashtag Mitt Romney, so that they can, like, curb the power of the church locally. Blinders full
0: of missionaries.
2: <laughs> yeah, so they're trying to, like, bring them into Mexico to curb the, the religious influence of the church, right? So the KKK, you know, is seeing this as a good thing. They're saying, well, maybe the Mexican government is also anti-Catholic, Right. So um, that's why you see those two different sides, those two different players on the starting lineup in Wikipedia.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm just imagining, too, like, what, uh, like, how many troops, like, or whatever, did did they, like, did the Knights of Columbus send any military help? I'm just, because they have those, like, ridiculous Mm. uniforms. (laughs) Did they just go charging into (laughs) battle with those? like I mean, for those who don't know, like, mostly now the Knights of Columbus is like the thing that, like, your weird uncle is a part of, who's, like, ancient. He, <laughs> like, grew up in, like, a, a Catholic household. So, just <laughs> yeah. imagine just a bunch of really old guys who just would go, like, they'd have their, like, It'd be like once a month they'd be at mass. They would have Mm -hmm. their whole like you know deal on and whatnot. Yeah, can imagine them in any way as like mercenary.
2: They made some really good fish fries at my church. I remember that. (laughs) They had like some good. They had some good fish fish fries. Yeah, they were good. Yeah, and they had beer and like all that stuff. Yeah, we're getting
0: back into Catholic hour here. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Um, so. uh, yeah. i want to i want to move this story forward a little bit because yeah. there's a lot of overlaps here with mm-hmm. something i know you research a lot which is fascism and specifically like fascism mm-hmm. in the catholic world mm-hmm. um because the um wars in the 20s um mussolini's already rose and risen to power by the you know mm-hmm. in the early 20s um yeah. the i think caius he was in uh, president in the 20s and 30s in mexico but he like people say maybe was like flirting with a kind of fascism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you have, um, obviously, what's going on in Spain and in other places. So how does yeah. this reaction, first of all, tie into the rise of fascism in the Catholic world? Yeah. And just as like a broader introduction, I know we talked about it on our episode, but for people who look at fascism mostly through the example of the Nazis, um, what is this whole other side of fascism or how does it Mm -hmm. manifest in the Mm -hmm. in the in the Catholic world and how is it similar? I mean you you don't have to tease out all the similarities and differences, but especially the main themes about a reaction to modernity. Um yeah yeah, and things like that.
2: So those are some great questions, Rob. And so um and just to quickly answer Nick's question too, the knights they weren't sending troops necessarily, but they were sending a lot of weapons to Mexico, which is kind of crazy because there's some documents that are in the archives that you see where there's like all this money flowing and there's all these exiled or retired generals on the border who are Mexican, but they don't like the government. They don't like guys. And they're kind of these middlemen who are moving all of this ammunition into Mexico. Right. And it's like, Oh, you know, our man in El Paso, he's doing this, you know, or our guy in this person. Right. So it's really fascinating to see how this Beto is.
0: O'Rourke.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my God. Yeah. So, um, it's funny because it reminds on me. Yeah, a tank as it rolled yeah, the Because <laughs> this is really like, um, this is why I call this like a Cold War conflict. Because this is what's going to happen, you know, in Central America and South America and the Caribbean right, later in the century. So it really it begins in this moment in Mexico. And also Nicaragua is going through a civil war at this time too. So you see kind of these first Cold War-esque conflicts in the 20s. Um, but to Rob's point about fascism. So in our episode on fascism, we went over the different ways to think about fascism, different models of fascism definitions, if you will. And, um, it's funny cause yeah, as Rob said, we have a very kind of limited view here in the U S too, about what fascism is. People think about Nazi Germany and they think about fascist Italy and, and Spain. And they kind of lump all of those together. Right. As I mentioned to you guys the other day, it's like all of these Lenin imitators gone wrong. Like it's just this horrible, like pro-American narrative that we get. Right. And, um, really, it, emits, it misses a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity to fascism. And, you know, it doesn't really go into how it survived even after World War II. It just kind of, you know, you know, brands it as something that the United States fought against and defeated gloriously. And then it just kind of went away after 1945, right? And so what we talked about in that episode uh, and how the Catholic Church fits into fascism is that even before World War One, even before someone like Mussolini... Um, Catholic activists in places like Latin America and Catholic Europe, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Western Europe, um, are already inclined uh, to some of these fascist movements because they've been mobilizing for maybe 30 or 40 years against uh, the rise of secular states and secular modernity. So Rob and I discussed this, um, you know, the revolutions of 1848 and then into getting into the 1850s and 60s. Right. Remember, Vatican I, I think we talked about this, this is 1868, probably, I think it was the date. Um, in the middle of the 1800s, there's this push to kind of bring back some of the legacies of the French Revolution in Europe and Latin America. So, because there's that conservative wave after Napoleon's defeat, and that kind of gets really challenged in the middle of the 1800s. And so, all of a sudden, different governments around the world uh, begin to adopt these secular liberal constitutions that are really limiting the power of the Catholic Church. Mexico is one of them in 1857, has a very controversial constitution that starts to really put the brakes on the Catholic Church. Very famously, the Pope at the time published a whole thing against the Mexican constitution, saying that it was blasphemous and irreligious and atheistic. right? And some similar things are happening in Europe. And you guys know this and you probably talked about it, right? In places like France and other other countries. So Catholics are already mobilizing against what they see as this kind of liberal modern wave. And so they're already taking a lot of ideological positions that are setting them up for, for a future uh, turn toward fascism. Uh, they're not they're anti-liberal in some ways, uh, anti-democratic, uh, anti-capitalist somehow, not in the sense that they are communist or socialists, but they want to find kind of a third way alternative to regulate capitalism through some sort of intervention. And it's um, like this
1: is forming around an ideology that forms mm-hmm. then a little bit later in European history that we're kind of maybe not talking about. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing. It was like a lot of these um, Catholics. They call this they call this Catholic social doctrine. That was the name they gave it because they didn't want to call it socialism because they were afraid of that word because they thought it was yeah. it was atheistic and kind of like a slippery slope toward like communism. So, um, basically, by the turn of the century, by the early 1900s, Catholics are threatened and opposed to a lot of things that modernity has come to represent. So, they don't like industrialization, for example. They have this kind of nostalgia for this uh, pre-industrial world that was uh, kind of nationally pure, ethnically pure, religiously pure, ideologically pure. Uh, There's a very big, um, what is it, they have a very big fear of cosmopolitanism. And big cities and big big urban cities with a lot of immigrant populations, particularly Jewish populations, because they don't see them as really um, places where there could be any sort of morality. Uh, They look at urban culture. They look at dance and art and music and just interracial populations living together in very close proximity to each other. And they see this as kind of a hotbed for like promiscuity and sin. So there's a lot of Catholic reformers that, you know, try to... Put the lid on it, and they're blaming modernity and urban modernity on this, and secular modernity, because they're saying, "Well, what, what's going on? Like, what happened to the old world where it was kind of a rural world, and the church had all this power over the countryside, and it really ruled over people's lives?" So there's kind of like that um, that threat of the church losing its power, <clears throat> and there's also with World War One uh, and the increased militarization of society, the church itself also becomes very militant and, and begins to mobilize different sectors of society in a way that um, you know as I talked to Rob in the episode, it's kind of like a precursor to corporatism and the corporatist model of governance where like you just kind of organize society into, society into these big interest groups and you start moving them around for a specific purpose. Uh, so it, that is kind of an antithesis to individual individualism and kind of democracy based on the individual versus statecraft and state formation based on these massive groups of people that need to be militant and mobilized under what the state is trying to do. So this is why Catholic activists are already prone to a lot of the things that someone like a Mussolini is going to want to try to do by 1920, right? Um, And so with Mussolini specifically, like the social conservatism of his movement uh, is really something that draws Catholic partisans and I mentioned to Rob right, like Italy is not necessarily a, a religious state by any means, because Mussolini does try to put a, a boundary between himself and the Integralists, who are these Catholics that believe that all of society should be guided by moral principles, whether it's economic policy, public policy, uh, foreign relations, everything should be guided by the principles of the Catholic Church, and so Integralists really want to have something like a state religion. And to have religion permeate all aspects of social life, and Mussolini's basically saying no. Like we're going to have a secular state, and I'm going to be the head of it because he wants to curb the power of, of the Pope in Italy, right? He even gives the Pope his own separate state, right? in the and the latter in the courts, and so it's really interesting. So because because you have this confluence of integralism, anti democratic political movements uh, that harken back to decades of Catholic organizing. By the time you get to the 1920s and 30s, Catholics are very much already playing this game, right? So the Soviet revolution basically just gives them an excuse to amplify what they've already been doing for 40 years, right? Because now they're really talking about communism. And now it's not just secular modernity, but now it's like, oh, the Bolshevik threat of atheism and outlawing religion. And this is when they use that as a foil, as an other, to then just kind of, up the ante, you know, and just kind of really go all out in the, you know, discursively in the the language that they're using and the rhetoric of anti-communism. But even politically, right, they really begin to see something like uh, in Latin America, indigenous mobilization, black politicization of black communities. They see that as subversive because they see these groups as as leaning and, and tending toward the communist parties of different regions. So they really begin to preach a kind of politics that's very hierarchical that's very anti-democratic, that's very racially oppressive, because they begin to use communism as kind of this catch-all term to lump all these different groups together and, and essentially argue for the preservation of elite power, white elite power in some cases, and really um, limit the possibilities of empowerment for other communities that have been previously marginalized. So this is like all coming together in a perfect storm of sorts, right, to
1: put it that way. Yeah. Um, um yeah rob go ahead I ordinate. think that yeah. like uh, I think that too like also at the same time as well like I know that we've mentioned Mussolini and you know briefly the Nazis were name dropped uh also <laughs> at this time too there is like there are catholic nations or uh christian nations that are adopting very explicit fascist um uh, uh like political tendencies that are just also openly, yeah, like, like, o- Austro fascism is just openly Catholic and openly fascist. You have the like Romanian mm-hmm. Iron Guards. Well, okay, although they're Eastern Orthodox, I would say Eastern Orthodoxy is far more common, fa- has far more in common with, with Catholicism politically and socially than it does to, you know, let's say like American, uh, like evangelical or, or, um, what's the proper, like, like Protestant, mm-hmm. uh, uh, tendencies and whatnot. And these, like, like, end up obviously later on either in the sense of austro-fascism just getting swallowed up by you know germany when when uh when austria is annexed or in the case of the iron guard when the nazis get to romania they're like these guys are fucking more insane than we are and -hmm. just end up killing off half of the uh, uh uh the membership of the group and just kind of uh, uh, you know putting who they need in place of, of their uh you know puppet governments mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. place so it is it is like I know like like Italy you know Italy and, and, and Germany are obviously you know the 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 big names the superstars the <laughs> like, like of, of of fascism and Nazism of the yeah. of the 20s and 30s but there is like, like there are like some little like pockets mm-hmm. of of this really like religious fascism that do like take hold for so sure it, it was like I, it never is like this example at least to my knowledge at least that there is like a complete removal of the of, of like you know religious groups and of, of course yeah actual totally. political fascism
0: yeah and i mean something we're going to talk about in a second like when we get to the post-war order and Pius the 12th i mean um, croatia is another example of oh example yeah, yeah, yeah i forgot about croatia <laughs> and the but yeah i guess i guess what work what i see you two maybe kind of uh gesturing towards is that like it's maybe like typical to say i don't know that that religion becomes like this or catholicism becomes this outdated thing that's mm-hmm. being superseded by new ideologies like nazism and bolshevism that like replace mm-hmm. it but it's almost like at this time of great change is exactly when things like catholicism come back as kind of a I mean, in, in Eastern Europe to like... as an, Don't call as it a comeback, Rob. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. uh, as, as a form of state building or nation building, like that it's always present, or at least religion in general is always present at this transition yeah, between, like, sure. I don't know, old world and no, new world. How that, even the fact that there's like a change in the world to be negotiated. I mean, it reminds me of Marx's yeah. quote You you mentioned Vatican One. I mean, that time period. I don't know if he's talking about the Catholic Church specifically, but there's a reason he says the criticism of religion is the precondition or the prerequisite for all criticism. I mean, from Mm -hmm. his point of view, in that Mm -hmm. like this is the this is how understanding the world totality is structured, and so that's why it's the beginning of any kind of Mm -hmm. for a Marxist you know critique Mm -hmm. to go, you know, to try to understand how that totality changes and develops. So yeah, it's religion is central to all of this.
2: I agree. And I think to, to yours and Nick's point. Uh, so another part of this Catholic militancy, I mean, I talked about, I talked about anti-Semitism as this kind of reaction to cosmopolitanism and kind of the figure of the Jew as like this, you know, person without a nation who just lives in the city and steals money and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, but part, another branch of, of this Catholic activism is also anti-Protestantism. And precisely because, they look at something like liberalism and secular liberalism, and they and in, at least in my, in my sources that I'm looking at in Mexico, they always call it, you know, kind of this descendant of Anglo-Protestantism. And so that's another part of that Catholic militancy is saying something like liberal democracy, right, is itself a creation of Britain and the United States precisely because it's trying to um, relegate religion to the private sphere. And that's why it's seen as, like, not uh, working within Catholicism. Yeah, and to Ross's point, um, with religion and how religion is always there, um, it's kind of Im- important for us to think th- think about the fact that in the 1920s and 30s, we, living in 2020, we always see them as, like, the precursor to World War II. But people who live there, they didn't know that that was going to happen, right? We know this. And so for them, it was like... It was an unprecedented time. A lot of people thought it was the end of the world. It was very millenarian, right? They had just fought this horrible war. They never imagined there was going to be another war just like it or worse. So for them, it was like, well, this is religion's response to all of this. It's kind of becoming more militant, becoming more conservative, right? And really trying to coalesce people around these messages of religious uniformity, ideological uniformity, uh, right and racial uniformity in some cases because they they thought well they, we can't have skepticism we can't have differences we can't have because that's what led to all this conflict in the first place so let's kind of just narrow down right and that's where a lot of this fascist tendencies come from so yeah I mean I just wanted to answer those two points uh, we can move on though I don't know if you guys want to talk about Spain or you want to talk about other parts of Europe but yeah I'm up for wherever you want to take the conversation
0: I, I think I want to uh, to transition to. Um now, I think that's a pretty good historical mm-hmm. and theoretical background for what I want to talk about, which is the Catholic, the basically the Pope and the Vatican uh mm-hmm. from nineteen forty five through I don't know about today but mm-hmm. through the twentieth century t-
1: today yeah, yeah very much like Francis <laughs> is very much like a part of this whole thing as so it's just like we don't want to pretend that he is so <laughs> uh
0: i'll 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 throw it over to Nick then um and say. Who is Pius XII? (laughs) Okay,
1: well, first, um, um, war happens. Uh, uh, Wasn't that a doozy? Mm. 1945, the Axis lose. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the world has to, you know, have a new order, if you will. Mm. Uh, including the Catholic Church because they fucking did a lot of horrible shit during World War II that they just have been denying literally until this year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, so wait, explain that. So yeah. like, the, no, no, is oh, it, I will. Don't. It's like worry. the CIA; like they have to release the documents after a certain number of years. It's a Catholic Church. Can't they do what they want? Like never release anything.
1: I I don't know like the 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 specifics of it, but re- this year they they started releasing some of the documents about what the uh, Catholic Church was doing during World War II, and the Pope during this was Pope Pius the twelfth. And briefly, we touched on anti-Semitism, <laughs> uh, obviously, and how there was uh, the uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, actually, this was. Uh may this this may seem kind of weird to people who who don't know but if you've seen the passion of the christ then you are very much oh aware God. of the fact yeah. of catholic antisemitism is still very much a thing. Um, yeah, the sure. official like doctrine of the church <laughs> now obviously that antisemitism is bad. They wrote this though like in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Antisemitism was still officially seen as like a thing because of the teaching more not official official or unofficial it doesn't really matter but Catholics still even till today um, hold the belief that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Not the fact that Jesus like had to die or that, you know, this is part of some, some, you know, uh um, you know, kind of like whole p- part of the plan, you know, mm-hmm. like the Romans killed him or whatever. It's like, no, 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 the Jews, the one who turned Jesus over yeah. and the, like that's where the uh, a lot of this this semitism it, it reminds was, uh,
0: me of this uh, photo I saw today. Just a photo taken of a bumper sticker, which is, if Jesus had a gun, he'd still like he he would have lived. <laughs>
1: <Which is> like, <laughs> but I thought he was supposed to die. I thought that was the whole. It's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. But then they still <laughs> have exactly. To, like, you know, exactly still pissed about something that then was even foretold. And like, yes, there is a material reason for then why the anti-Semitism comes because of, of of as you mentioned. But there is also then like a slight doctrine that then backs it up too. That then is seen as like the blame. Of you know the death of Jesus, which has to happen in order for the prophecy of Jesus to come true, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pope Pius XII uh, was kind of there's 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 like a mixed it's like a mixed bag with him because up until recently the Catholic Church kind of tried to promote him as a reformer because he is Mm -hmm. the Pope during the transition, like he is uh, uh, during this transitional period of of what Vatican becomes Vatican II, Um, Mm -hmm. but. So there was this, uh, like, the official thing of the Catholic Church that they tried to help the Jews escape and that they, you know, Mm -hmm. had, you know, uh, 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 help people flee from the the ghetto, the Jews flee from the ghettos of Rome, when the reality is, I think, like, a handful (laughs) of people survived. All the rest of them ended up either in concentration camps or being killed. And um, the Pope had very much a... um, kind of like a U.S. approach to World War II. I think because we were talking about this yesterday, of that then America likes pretending that they were these, like, the triumphant, you know, always anti-fascist in their actions, this and that and that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really until 1940, like, you know, 1943 with the invasion of Sicily and 1944 with the invasion of Normandy that the United States even enters the European theater while the Soviet Union had been fighting since 1941, Mm -hmm. uh, 1940, sorry, um, pushing... You know, we uh, like, like, you know, increasingly weakening the German military, and then you know, the the British and Americans, the British after being completely embarrassed uh, yeah. throughout the majority of World War II, can <laughs> strike back with the U.S. Yeah. and and do that. But the Catholic Church definitely had, and an under Pope Pius, uh, I would I would argue at least maybe you can correct me, Ricky, about uh, a very similar approach to that. Then we're just going to kind of like like they knew that the Holocaust was happening. Oh yeah. Um, didn't do anything about it, and then kind of now have the thing of like, look at the like eight people that we helped. Like, isn't that great?
2: A lot of them actually even uh, openly supported the Holocaust. I mean, you're talking- yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think this happens in Latin America. Like a lot of these Catholic militants are like Nazis. They they like the Nazis, right? They're saying, oh, look at them. They're, um, you know, trying to unify in the way that we should unify our our own nation, right? Uh, What based on racial uniformity, religious and ideological uniformity, right? There's all this anti-Semitism also in Latin America, as we talked about earlier, um, anti-immigrant sentiment, xenophobia, right? So yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of them are like openly um, praising this. And so, and I think with Latin America specifically, uh, because Franco in Spain uh, is is also, uh, you know, allying with Hitler in these ways, um, they see this as, as just something that's so natural, right? Because they're looking up to Franco as like this, hero of hispanism and look at him right he he created a state right for for 15 years before the spanish civil war spain had been trying to create this state that like was religiously uniform and franco kind of perfects this in the the eyes of catholics right he embodies this and so they're saying and look he's he sees hitler as an ally so therefore like hey like he is he is someone who is also trying to carry out a similar mission so for sure i mean none of this really surprises me at all unfortunately
0: uh, you mentioned the, the allies and, and the church. I do see it. It's almost like there's like a one-to-one example of every like bad thing the allies did, like not really being against the fascists. The church did too. Like, yeah. like. Concentration camps being like that's bad, but you know that's not our top priority. And then also like Operation Paperclip, like taking all the German scientists. Like the Church was like doing the Vatican rat line, sending mm-hmm. all the yeah. ustaza to to South America. Like yeah. it, it's, you know, it it lines up pretty well. Actually. One of the
1: weirdest things about it too is that then the Catholic Church, like Pope Pius the uh not second Pope Pius the um in some cases, just, like, blatantly just denies the Holocaust. One of the weirdest things of it yeah. is that, like, there were a lot of Catholics who were sent to concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Um, either that then, because of the religious aspect or because some Catholics, uh, Catholic priests, aligned themselves with, you know, anti-Nazi-resistant groups and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty wild though that there are just some of these quotes from uh there's like like one that just comes off my head that i that I read in researching this where Pope Pius says that uh the Jews are just notorious for over exaggerating and whatnot, which is insane to think of <laughs> Jesus, especially when there's yeah. these wires coming through of then like you know you know not even just like Christian persecution but very specifically Catholic persecution that then is also happening alongside all this other political and religious mm-hmm. um you know uh, persecution, and extermination at the hands of the Nazis. It's 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 so just mind blowing to me. But um, I, I know I people who still that, say that shit <laughs> like to yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, so it's just like, oh my god. Yeah. So anyway, you're
2: saying, yeah.
0: Uh, well, I just want to bring up something else because uh, we're talking about Pope Pius XII. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I know him for is the 1949 decree against communism, the Catholic Church document yep. approved by Pope Pius XII. Which declares Catholics who profess communist doctrine to be excommunicated yep. as apostates from the Christian faith. Um, listeners of our Wait, show, am I
1: automatically excommunicated then? I
0: ch- I don't know. I, I, I think <laughs> I have to like do it, like because you do communism. No, well, there's a list. Yeah, exactly. Dude, <laughs> he's fucking, the Catholic Church is owning you as an <laughs> online poser, dude. Because
1: <laughs> I think. Um, Nick, where's your communist revolution, huh? huh? <laughs> there's you, a want, list you want to be
0: excommunicated? There's a list of bishops who are excommunicated. Um, listeners of the show will be happy to know that um, I, I am, am, not just, excommunicated I am just reading this off of Wikipedia, but that the uh, the Pope started to develop this document immediately after the 1948 Italian elections, in which mm. the, in which the yeah. Italian Communist Party received 31% of the vote. Only 31% of the vote.
1: Does the Pope have a gladio connection, big dog? I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Sure.
0: So, I mean, is there anything that, that that we want to say about the Cold War? I mean, about communism in general before we get to Vatican II and, and the Catholic Church?
2: Um, so, I think... Catholics didn't like communism. It? Yeah. <laughs> That's not true, <laughs> exactly. actually, but yeah. Well,
0: like, what's... I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit, Ricky, but what is the... I mean... something i want to get into in the rest of the episode is sort of what form does we've talked about the catholic church kind of representing a Mm -hmm. right-wing politics or trying to form one and what form does that take over time so Mm -hmm. immediately after world war ii it seems to be like very closely aligned with um you know western europe and this um, Mm anti-communist ideology that can kind of cohere a new social
2: order Mm -hmm. Uh, i think to your question rob um I think the church really takes anti-communism and the official church. Because, And that's, I think, what I want to get into is that one thing is what the Vatican is saying and doing and, and, you know, kind of putting out there as the official message. But then it's a very different story if you look at what actual religion looks like on the ground and what people are doing, right? Whether it's in rural towns in Latin America or, you know, parts of East Asia or Africa. And I think that's exactly what we're getting at. And and this is, I think, a good lead up to World War. I mean, sorry, to Vatican II, is that um, I think part of this anti-communist line that comes from the church, uh, you know, I I use the word integralism, which I think is big in in Catholic circles. But I think the other word that we should talk about is romanization. Romanization is this idea that the church is in 20th century, um, you know, kind of this movement within the church to make sure that every single... Catholic diocese, archdiocese, parish is, you know, top to bottom aligned with the doctrines that are promoted officially by the Vatican. Because what had been happening over the course of the 1800s uh, is that a lot of rural communities, uh, a lot of parishes and local priests had allowed for the flourishing of popular religious traditions. And actually, one of the reasons why the Crisola Rebellion in Mexico is unsuccessful the Spanish government at the time refuses to support the Cristeros because they don't think of them as being Catholic enough because they're these indigenous peasants who have these popular <laughs> forms of religiosity. And they're looking at these martyrs of the war and they're like venerating them like saints. And they're thinking, who are these crazy Indians, right? I mean, there's a lot of racism here, a lot of paternalism. And so the Spanish government under Primo de Rivera, who was uh, you know Francisco Franco's boss in the 1920s, Right, he's basically saying these aren't these aren't real Catholics. Like, why are we going to get mixed up in this conflict if these people, you know, these brown-skinned, you know, indigenous people—hip
1: These hop Catholics with <laughs> pants—exactly, they're just
2: like you know, they're just taking any any you know schmuck of everyday life and they're like <laughs> praising him as a saint. Like, this isn't really Catholicism. Oh, and so, ro- like the fucking Catholic Church doesn't already do that to begin <laughs> with. Come on, exactly right. And so that's the point. The Romanization is this idea where. Well, you know what, we're going to align everything now, like we're going to bring everything together, everything is going to emanate from the Vatican, it's going to be very top down. And Romanization is really popular at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, particularly the 20s and 30s too, the period that I study. And so I think anti communism is part of this story, because anything that is not aligned with the Vatican, is just dismissed as communist. So if you have indigenous peasants or Asian peasants, you know, in places like Vietnam or whatever, who are worshipping in a specific way or in the Philippines, they're just they're dismissed It's just like, oh, they're just communist agitators. Oh, they're not following the true faith. Oh, they're just being corrupted by, like, all these modern influences or whatever, right? And so anti-communism becomes this catch-all term for the church to promote its own projects of Romanization, right? Aligning faith all over the world. And integralism, which is basically, you know, well, we're in every country, so let's make sure that every country has policies and governments in place that flow from Catholic principles. So anti-communism is kind of the vehicle for all of these things to, to be spread into the world. And so the church really loves um, anti-communism for this matter. Like they see it as like, oh, this is a way for us to pursue our project without actually labeling it as a religious project. It could just be an anti-communist project and we can have all these allies, you know, who are going to back us up.
1: Uh, I just on a really random note, I was looking up, speaking of uh, have Catholics like having a fucking patron saint for everything, Yeah, uh, I was very curious if at this time they made a patron saint for fascism. <laughs> oh. uh, they kind of did and kind of didn't. I guess they just proclaimed that St. Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of fascism. <laughs> but fascism is <laughs> not the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. to be
0: the patron saint of podcasting one day.
1: I hope I'm the patron saint of podcasting. You <laughs> have to have two miracles, though, so... Like that's, uh, <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> so you you've already talked about it, Ricky. I mean, you said that this is such a you know attractive um, ideology or, or or practice for the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but then what leads to the Vatican II reforms? I mean, short, like ten fifteen years later. I mean, and, and I mean the roots of that were already present. It seems like in the fifties. So why yeah. why the shift?
2: Because I guess they finally realized it wasn't working, um, and I think we talked about this at some point in our episode too, Rob, but. I think in Latin America, I think the Cuban Revolution and the civil wars in Guatemala uh, were really eye-opening for the church. Because it was like, look, um, you know, we're trying here. (laughs) Like, we're trying to, you know, be anti-communist, but it's not working. Like, people are really drawn to these, you know, socialist movements. And rightfully so, right? I mean, we're talking about a a region of the world that's been colonized for centuries. And even after independence, there's neocolonialism and elites are still oppressing, right, Uh, indigenous populations, workers, Afro-descendant populations, women. So um, there is this huge movement in Latin America toward, you know, socialist movements, communist parties, etc. And so the Catholic Church begins to understand that it needs to change its strategy to be able to effectively challenge uh, communism in terms of winning the hearts and minds of people, right? And so I think Vatican II is kind of a changing of course. Uh, because a lot of things that happened in Vatican II, when it would have never happened, I think, 50 years earlier, or even 100 years earlier, right? And so I think it's important for us to kind of situate it because it's also, I mean, there are similar movements happening in Africa and East Asia, right? Whether it's the wars of independence that have these huge players who are part of communist parties and socialist movements, right? They're They're also, I mean, the Catholic Church is seeing its presence in those regions and saying, well, we got to adopt and tailor our strategy here because we're losing ground. And I think Vatican II is a way that the church tries to open. But I think to Nick's point, I think what goes wrong in Vatican II is that a lot of priests were already communists or socialists. And so this is just like, okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. And so particularly in America, a lot of priests um, coming out of the Vatican II generation, they begin to mobilize their communities in new ways that the church would have never approved of. And a lot of them do get excommunicated And they get, you know, labeled as terrorists or, you know, just like evil, whatever. Um, So get murdered by
1: U.S. death squads.
2: Exactly. Right. The (laughs) CIA. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I think Vatican II is a a kind of a a, a trying, you know, an attempt to kind of turn a corner. But did it really? Right. And I think that's the question, because there's a lot of changes that do happen. And we can talk about those, I think. And Nick was mentioning them the other day. But there's also a lot of things that's, that stay the same, unfortunately, when it comes to, like, the actual hierarchy of the church and, like, you know, how it functions and what the popes especially are trying to do, so.
0: All right, I want to ask about this specifically as a Catholic noob. So what is the difference between the Vatican One and Vatican Two services <laughs> and churches?
1: Yeah, that, well, there was, like, it was, first off, the church language was Latin for everything. Mm-hmm. So you would go. You would literally have like a, uh, a what is it called? Ecclesiastic Latin. There was a specific language. Yeah. Like there was a specific version of Latin that you would even have. That was the church-approved Latin. Because remember, Latin wasn't. I mean, had pretty much been deceased for a few hundred years before. Mm-hmm. Or like, if if was used, was it in an academic sense as well, in like you know, uh, European academia before mm-hmm. that. But no, I mean, like you had. So you had. You had. Latin, mass masses in latin you had a uh, um a lot more kneeling just in general uh i mean like uh you also had too that then that the method of how the priest would then um address the uh like just like smaller things too that then like um the altar had to be at a certain spot and the priest would then face back like his back would be turned towards the people so that, exactly. which actually makes more sense when you think about it because the priest is offering up. You know, it to God. Um, you weren't allowed to touch the Eucharist before, so the 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 um, body and blood of Jesus. You physically weren't allowed to. You had the priest would have to give it to you. Vatican II said that you can, mm-hmm. like little small things like that. But the general, oh, women had to um, cover their heads. So if you ever go to a Latin mass in the United States, you'll see um, people come with um, what look like. Like veils, like like, like doilies, or like veils yeah. and stuff like that, like into church, and they like remain that way the entire time because they like the Catholic Church actually had at least for women, um, a relatively similar thing to how uh, Judaism had it that you have to enter a house of God with uh, mm-hmm. a head covering, and like then, Islam Vatican, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, Islam has the exact same thing. The so Vatican two changed that to become more, um, I guess quote unquote modern in that sense. But there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who still. Like that, and I don't even like. I don't even think that that's like that weird that they think that those are like cool because they are really interesting. And it to me at least seems much more like ritualistic if you're going to go and then spend you know two hours of your week this like <laughs> it is it is it is far more interesting than just getting like you know a good timey you know eating pizza Protestant. and playing rock band yeah, with Pastor exactly. Matt. <laughs> well, yeah. well, under Vatican
0: <laughs> one, it was strictly cheese pizza, but Vatican <laughs> two, you could get up, and up. Hawaiian yeah, big a crony. but
1: but. but, but <laughs> But really, at least just, like, from my personal perspective, I can understand it when people like the, like, the the ritual of the Latin Mass, because yeah. it is very—I mean, like, there is, too, like, like the—it's um, hard to imagine, but it also, like, uh, uh, Vatican II also changed, like, reformed the Church in the sense of, like, just, like, with the splendors of the Vatican. I mean, hard to imagine with how ridiculous, like, how ridiculously wealthy— the church is right. um, but I think it's finally coming into sense with like Pope Francis being probably the first Pope ever to like be um, more frugal with his presentation and whatnot in comparison to his predecessors who were just like yeah. blinged out looking like a you know like, like a Greek Orthodox priest you know <laughs> like I like, yeah. I think Armani or Versace used to make the, the, the slippers for the, pre, for, for, for the Pope. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I thought it was Gucci. It was one of those. Yeah. It was, it was one, one of those. them. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and, and um like Pope Francis was the first one actually to be like, well, you know, precepts take of like a vow of poverty. I'm going to kind of go back to that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously he still lives in like, you know, in Vatican city, you know, he lives in just pure gold, but there is then this sense of, I think finally, like, yeah, like, like, like there still wasn't this complete realization of, of what, these reforms meant even until now yeah. with the sense of how uh, and, and Pope Benedict the sixteenth is a hundred percent an example of how conservative the ter- the church was and still is. Like he has a massive following within the current um, like uh, 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 like order of cardinals and stuff like that. Yeah, because they think that uh, Francis is too liberal when he, he reality isn't. But yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it's, just, it's this it's this ever changing. Thing within the church still that then is also having a lot of backlash still currently.
2: So is Pope Francis like is he Cory Booker or is he like
1: uh, or is he Bernie Sanders like what is he? We're getting, not Bernie, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, <laughs> let me. So I still don't. know. we have to go with another Catholic. He's he's a, he's a he's Pete Buttigieg. Oh <laughs> <laughs> wait, uh, yeah, but wait, Rob. Let me ju- let me just follow up on the point on
2: Vatican yeah, too please. though because this goes to your question. Uh, I think of all the things that that um, Nick mentioned, which. All of it, obviously, is correct. I mean, all that stuff happened. Um, I think the biggest, most monumental change is the language, at least in Latin America and multiracial societies around the world. I think the fact that you can have mass in someone's vernacular language um, and have a more kind of direct communication between priests and, you know, the people who are there, I think that was huge uh, because one thing that I want to put in perspective for a lot of our listeners who might not be familiar with the region, is even by the 1960s, which is like, you know, yesterday, right? Like, I mean, my parents were alive in the 60s and stuff. Uh, A lot of communities in Latin America specifically, they didn't even speak Spanish or Portuguese. They spoke indigenous languages. Um, The governments and the church had to do a really uh, thorough effort to try to get these people to even speak the official languages of the country. And even today, they still don't speak them. So to have a priest who is able to deliver a message that is in some local indigenous language that people can really understand to let them kind of, you know, have that freedom, I think really was important for mobilizing people and for creating openings for change. And one thing that I did mention to you guys, I think it was just a quick anecdote. Um, When I was in Ecuador last summer with students, we went to this town called Salinas and we learned about how in the sixties and seventies after Vatican II, you know, this Italian priest who came to the town started preaching liberation theology and kind of empowering people to to embark on these, uh, you know, paths of, like, social change to the point where, like, within the span of 20 or 30 years, the town went from, like, you know, the, you know, stereotypical, like, mud huts and, like, the big houses of, like, the wealthy elites. And now it's, like, you know, everybody owns the factory. People have access to, like, the profits that they make from, you know, they sell cheese and, and chocolate and textiles, I think, are the biggest... Um, commodities that they export. So, you know, th- that is huge. Like the fact that you can say that the church had a, a role in, in in moving the people in that in the avenue of change. It's just one of the examples of things that would happen in Vatican, after Vatican II that were not no way that were going to happen before Vatican II. So in some cases, you could say that it inspired changes. But in others, I mean, I think we can argue that there were still a lot of things that didn't change. So...
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's funny that you mentioned that then that because of Catholicism this community ends up kind of like more or less in like a, a some form of like a socialist or or you know, at least like a syndicalist yeah. sort of mm-hmm. formation. One of the things that's so funny to me is that because obviously like from growing up in, you know, Catholicism hearing then like the how you know it's taught how you know this and that and that obviously Catholic, like, like the teachings of Jesus and, like, some form of liberation theory, you know, line up a lot. One of the funniest things I suggest all of our listeners to do is to look up the, uh, like, Catholic.org's definition of communism on their site. Because, one, it's probably the best definition and the most detailed definition of communism. And, two, um, they then have to very specifically tell you why Catholicism is in no way communist. And they do a very horrible job of doing that. <laughs> yeah. that's
2: really interesting i didn't know i didn't know there was a thing on the website yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah.
0: (laughs) so this brings me to what we were talking about before which is i've always heard of course i've heard of john paul ii but i don't really know who he was other than the fact that he was i don't know worked for the cia and was helping uh, end communism (laughs) in the east uh in in his in his native poland but mm-hmm. yesterday it's it's it struck me that everything you guys are explaining and i think even what you're saying now fits into it is that he is the 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 obama pope like he's got he's like the swag pope like internationally super popular um the first non-italian in what however many years 500 right? <laughs> yeah um but to me I what's what I'm interested in him is how he introduces a new kind of conservatism or right wing politics to the church, and maybe you guys can disagree under these new conditions post Vatican II. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of what people talk <coughs> about, like to to reincorporate maybe like resistance movements. May, maybe there's nothing to resist. I mean, if it's a if it's a if it's a thriving syndicalist community, but to yeah. me it seems like you could argue the Catholic Church reincorporates kind of elements that we're seeking, you know, to overthrow it or you know end you know, communist uh, movements and things like that so how, mm. how how do you guys what do you guys think of john paul ii is this assessment right wrong
1: uh i i guess i'm just going to quickly go and just because i mentioned uh joseph ratzinger for a quick minute aka mm. pope benedict the 16th um i think that the biggest proof of that is how he was his right-hand man and uh, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, John Paul II is his Polish <laughs> Obama, as you called him earlier, which uh, I think is pretty, cool, pretty great. Um, yeah. And this idea then of like uh, of him being this this kind of larger than life. I mean, he was immediately beatified and immediately canonized, which for some people is like a like two or three hundred year process. Um and So that's
0: just rough to think about. Like you are the word of God on on the planet, and then they're still like, I don't know. We're thinking two hundred, three hundred years. Not sure if you'll. Yeah, like you'll, Joan of Arc took four
1: hundred and fifty years for her Dude, to she, be.
0: She fucking burned. Yeah, it took. But, <laughs> man, that's that's yeah. tough critics. But it's, it's
1: it's really like it's really the sense that then John Paul II within the Catholic at, at least this is just from from my perspective. Like I mean, he was the Pope I more or less grew up with, and I have uh, the most. Um. Probably like the best memory of because when I stopped going to church, it was like uh, Benedict the Sixteenth was 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 pope, and he was he was pretty sus, and he has a horrible reputation now. But a lot of the politic is um, quite similar of the two, and I think it's very unfair then when people go and point to just because okay, yeah, John Paul II's legacy is that like he helped you know he helped Reagan break the Berlin Wall down, whatever the fuck it is, you know that just yeah. complete. Um, you know, anti-materialist analysis of how the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, also, very much responsible <laughs> for just covering up a lot of the, the pedophilia stuff. You know, yes. just uh, uh, not a good dude. Let's just say that. And I guess Ricky probably knows <laughs> him way more than I do about, about about John Paul II. But he, like every Catholic, will just tell you that he's like the best, and they just don't really know why. They'll just be like, "He's there, and he is nice, and I like him." <laughs>
0: this does make Ratzinger Joe Biden, by the way. <laughs> like, exactly.
1: Yeah. Jo- yeah. Uh, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, who still like like his whole new thing right now is m- insane amounts of Islamophobia. Like he yeah. continuously. Like, funny, but just, he's just like, been he's like, like, like he writes so fucking much because he's in exile technically, <laughs> but he's still like. He still has a massive following and it's his his like number one thing is about how like the 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 Islamic world is going to like take over again and stuff like that.
0: So I'm just imagining him on like a Ben Shapiro style radio show where he's just going off and it's then like it's like a 90 year old. You the pope? Like what how did you get to this? Like, you should have. Uh. Um
2: yeah, it's really interesting. So, uh I think with John paul II, one thing that's super important to just remember about him is besides the fact that he was the first non-italian pope in however many centuries he was also the first pope to leave the vatican and go to different countries most notably uh mexico is one of the countries that he goes to if not the first country that he goes to outside of italy uh, in the 1970s and precisely the one of the first places he goes and the last place he went on his last visit was the site of a monument to Jesus Christ that's in the central state of Guanajuato, which was really famous because it was one of the things that triggered the Cristo Rebellion in the first place. Because the Mexican he's, uh, doing, fish,
1: he's doing the the Franco thing where he just like yeah. puts his his uh, his his mausoleum where all the uh, all the what's it called like uh, um, yeah 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 where all the resistance fighters for yeah well but
2: that's the thing with 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 John Paul II is like so he goes to these very Uh, symbolic sites uh, in Catholic countries, specifically in Mexico. And he kind of gets close to the people. And so I think one of the reasons why people, everyday people have this like really amazing image of him is because they actually got to see him in person. And like for them, that was like very spiritually meaningful and whatever. And like people remember it and people like have photographs and like some people even shook his hand. And so I think that's where like the cultural image of like the Obama-esque image comes in, right? And I think a lot of people are really, uh, you know, emotionally just like. I, and this is a different generation. This is not my generation. I never saw him, but I know my parents are part of that generation. I know my aunts and uncles. My mom part saw of that generation. Pope John Paul the yeah. Second. Yeah, dude, like is, I had a, is. I had an electrician who was at my house when I was 15 years old remodeling our kitchen. And he and my parents talked for hours about John Paul II coming over because he was Catholic, <laughs> and he like they were just like the most like I still remember this guy. His name was Scott, the electrician, <laughs> and he was like talking to my parents Scott for hours the Catholic about just John Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, John Paul, too. Like, and so it's I think like...
1: also, like, in, a, in an Obama sense, too, as well. Like, yeah, like, like, uh, John Paul literally did like a stadium tour in the United States. Of yeah, exactly. Mass. He said mass at Yankee Stadium. He said, yeah, he said, Wait, mass, really? yeah, he said <laughs> I swear to God, in the 70s, he said mass at Yankee Stadium. He said mass at Sun Devil Stadium. Yeah. Um, which was incredibly controversial, actually, because they had to like cover up all of the, the Sparky, the Sun Devil yeah, logos yeah, yeah. at ASU <laughs> because it's, uh, the devil, baby, yeah, exactly. And yeah. uh, yeah, so he, he like not only, all right, John Paul II, uh, uh, Barack Obama, and also maybe the first like hair metal pope, if you will, yeah, maybe, all yeah, right. yeah,
2: I think so. I mean, I think, uh, I think this is the, the aura of celebrity, which um, Rob is an expert on, right? And so Rob talks about celebrity and spectacle all the time, and I think this is part of it, and uh, so I think that's where we get like the kind of the everyday people grassroots appeal. But um, I will say, like, we do have to, you know, thinking of him as like a historical figure and like what he did or did not do and like how he was aligned with different movements. I think it's right. I mean, he was definitely um, conservative. Uh, you know, I mean, he's a pope, like, <laughs> right. But um, but also to the point where um, I remember very controversially like he would go to Cuba uh, and meet with Fidel Castro. And I don't know if, whether or not that was like actually substantive materially speaking, if it was just him, like, doing some sort of symbolic gesture. But he was, like, still, uh, you know, on these anti-communist tropes, trying to walk away from them a little bit after the fall of the Soviet Union. But, um, you know, it's
0: it's still there. He's a graceful winner.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? And and the thing is, uh, with, internally, though, with the church, within the church, I should say, um, he did... Like Nick is saying, like he covered up a lot of pedophilia. Uh, I don't know why. Like, I mean, I don't, I mean, because actually it was Ratzinger who (laughs) really.
0: Why did, why didn't, why did Obama bail out the banks? I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, and so really famously. um, Lots of of pedophiles. No, I mean, really like, um, you know, I think. You know, Francis, no, sorry, not Francis, Benedict Benedict was the one who really kind of put the axe on the on a lot of the pedophile rings. And in Mexico, it was funny because, um, you know, there was a huge uh, ring of pedophiles who called themselves the Legionaries of Christ. And, uh, you know, they uh, had this movement in the 70s and 80s, and 90s. And actually, really interestingly, one of my own like relatives, uh, she was not a victim of anything, but she was like a like a nun like she was converted like she went and she did missionary work like she's she's out of that now like she's married and has like three kids or whatever but but i mean this movement was like in everybody's lives lives and um you know it was it wasn't until the 2000s at, you know when ratzinger takes over that he's like you know what like this guy who was the leader of this was a huge pedophile and like there's all these you know instances of child abuse etc so really he begins to like clean house uh, within the church. And so, I think that was the, one of the biggest flaws of of uh, John Paul II, which is not doing enough. Uh, I think if you look at him, though, in the context of, like, intra-Catholic politics, like, within the church, like, the Pope before him was pretty much, I think, killed by the mob. I mean, he was poisoned.
1: And so, he yeah, was, pope like... John Paul I. Yeah, exactly. He
2: was the one from the Godfather. Godfather. He's, the, he's the one from the Godfather. Like, <laughs> like, he was, like... Uh, you know, he's trying to take all these interests in with, he tried to took, he tried to take on all these interests within the church and he was murdered. I mean, I mean, that's not officially known,
1: but I mean, it's known,
2: right? Like, so it's like, yeah. so John Paul II is like, holy shit, like, what do I do? Isn't Cause the he's The like,
1: line that he died of pneumonia or something. Yeah. Like something that? like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, uh, you know, and, and I think the Da Vinci Code or one of
1: those books is also like where,
2: where the Pope is killed, angel, angels and demons. I think they're also taking from that, too, that like, um, you know, in the 60s, this tumultuous time for like church history, like there's Popes who like, you know, they get the axe. Like, you know, Kelly's murdered. So why not, you know, kill the Pope, too? You can kill anybody. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah so uh, well, I was think the
0: time you could do anything. <laughs>
2: I know, right? Jeez, like, <laughs> hello NSA, right? But anyway, so I think, um, yeah, I think, I think that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't go after some of these pedophiles because they had a lot of power. They had a ton of power in like their own circles, and because a lot of them were were connected to bishops and money and even drug traffickers in, in Latin America too. Uh and uh and I think also just because it's power, I mean like, you know, he's gotta leave certain people in place, otherwise what's gonna happen, who's gonna take over? Uh, you know, and yeah, Ratzinger, you know, he's conservative. I mean, I remember him too being really conservative. And Francis is like, again, trying to go back to these, you know, really um what's the word I wanna use here? you know kind of like going to the original sentiment of what this was supposed to be about right but you know like hey like we should take an oath of poverty whatever but again like it is the vatican it is the church like how much can they really do that or are they going to really can do that so yeah that's that's what i have to contribute at this point on that (laughs) yeah
0: i mean i'm not i'm not an expert and i'm not here to like specifically bash the catholic church something i know almost nothing about but since you did mention my my line on celebrity and spectacle this is the process by which a like like reaction and like specifically the kinds of politics or the system that like diffuses revolutionary (laughs) consciousness and potential like this is the process by which it happens so the church then successfully like incorporated uh, basically revolutionary challenges are you to doing it doing a gramscian analysis that's, of the catholic church
1: uh, that, yeah basically <laughs> but i
0: mean i'm not here i'm no i'm no expert i'm just saying that's the dynamic as it appears i today.
2: mean it's like what you and i were talking about our episode on fascism robin populism it's like the aesthetic you know aspect of politics that like draws people right the aesthetic and then they don't do real politics they don't actually challenge like the structures that are there right so we talked about this too in some of our episodes on the podcast so i agree
0: so um so unless you have anything more to say about john paul the second like just to as our last segment like what's the situation today and specifically uh like when when we went through the outline to me it seems like it's coming full circle because right now there's something if 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 john paul is the uh, obama pope who's like limiting i don't know a kinds of uh yeah. Different forms of politics or you know, challenges or revolution. It seems like now the old pope is literally writing like the Turner <laughs> Diaries in his spare time. Okay, like I'm just saying, I'm just saying, then the parallel today would be how, just to take the United States as an example, uh, people are going outside the Democratic Party, or there's some kinds of new mm-hmm. like it cannot cohere this, uh, the system anymore, like it's not. Mm. There's, there's challenges, and then at the same time, of course, there's new kinds of caths and other kinds of like socialist uh, cath- uh, Catholics. Um, maybe that's just all online, but there's no, no, definitely no, lots of no, different no, no, no. elements of this.
1: The, the, I think you're absolutely right about that, at least in the, in, the, in the example of the United States. I don't know about Europe because I don't think I've ever met an actual practicing Catholic in Europe. <laughs> so... <laughs> But um I'd, yeah, I do know for a fact that then um and you see this if you ever turn on Fox News to any of our oh, listeners yeah. in the US, that there's a massive Catholic, like conservative reawakening that is very much against uh the current Pope. That they don't even view him as the Pope, actually. Yep. Like they still view maybe not the maybe I don't know if they view like Benedict the Sixteenth as as the pope but they like him more because he was more openly conservative more open i mean now he's just openly islamophobic um and there is all this stuff that then that they can also justify the trump bullshit with much yep, more exactly with the old version like literally just with like the teachings of the last pope than with the new one. i mean you know po- uh, 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 uh francis being you know giving these just like weak ass like statements of just but like like y- you know got to do something about climate change and then you know uh yeah maybe sipping too much of that, like, Protestant work ethic bullshit that, than, that the United States... Because, I mean, American Catholics want to pretend that they're Protestant so much without having to actually convert, yeah. you know? So they <laughs> they they, yeah. they they have taken in all of, like, the, the idiosyncrasies of, like, capitalism and with, you know, the Protestant work ethic and whatnot, but they don't, like catholicism i would honestly say like at its core which like you know we mentioned francis is kind of going back to this this um you know what catholicism is at least in my in my opinion is yeah like you know oath of poverty somewhat to a degree of of, of anti-capitalism or maybe not anti-capitalism yeah. but you know anti um you know kind of anti-colonialism
2: almost too yeah. in some some ways too yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: and it really is it really is kind of the sense of that for you know American Protestants or Catholics who think that they're Protestant, this goes against (laughs) everything that then that the United States is also for. So there is, I, I think that you're absolutely right in this, that there has to be then also, um, I mean, I think even like the head of the American Catholic church currently right now is also very much against, um, Uh, 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 Francis there's I know for a fact that there's plenty of bishops who don't like him in the United States Uh, churches have become much more uh, Catholic churches have become much more politicized I would probably argue since um, Roe v. Wade but they've also then um, become encompassing you know much more uh, uh, typical conservative issues as well. So things right, that I think, exactly. think Catholics would be better about, especially within, like, the Latino community, such as, you know, immigration is one. Um, a lot of American Catholics have a very hard-line approach to immigration for yeah. whatever fucking reason, you know? Just it <laughs> on and on and on that they've just kind of become a wing of, like... Uh, uh, um yeah, like a conservative wing of, they're not, like they're not a party, but they'll vote Republican typically, and all this other stuff because the social yeah. issues point them to this direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, maybe you can add to that, but that's at least what I see. Just of like with people that I know who are Catholic or you know grew up with totally. in the United States, they all have these psychotic, but like you know, uh, right wing beliefs now yeah. if they're still you know remotely Catholic. No, I
2: com- I completely agree with you, Nick. I think that's I think that's spot on in many ways. Because so just to back it up a little bit. There's a lot of people who don't like Pope Francis. I mean I have a lot of relatives who don't like Pope yeah. Francis because they see him as being too progressive exactly that like they they um, they're, they're they maybe they like Ratzinger, maybe they didn't they all love John Paul II but it's like they're really con- like Catholics have become really conservative in the last like 20 30 years like uh, you know increasingly so. Uh, I think uh, you know kind of to bring this full circle, In the case of Mexico, a lot of conservative, religious conservatives, conservative Catholics are really fond of Donald Trump. They love Donald Trump because of the pro-life issue. Uh, You know, in Latin America in the last three years, four years, like actually, ironically enough, around the same time of the Trump election, there's been a feminist reawakening uh, all over. I mean, I think it started in Argentina and Chile and the Southern Cone, but now it's all over Latin America. And it's millennial you know, multiracial feminist coalitions that are really getting at issues of gender violence and reproductive rights. Uh, cause there's just so much in Mexico specifically, you know, femicide is such a huge issue. Women are, are murdered like brutally and horribly. And, and it just happens, you know, more often than, than it should, that it should ever happen, obviously. But it's just like, there's very much a gendered, um, dynamic to the violent crime that's really taken off. And so, um, what happens is that Catholics are looking at these feminist movements who are calling for not just an anti-gender violence and patriarchy and law, but just also calling for like, yeah, the legalization of abortion, because in a lot of Latin American countries, abortion is still illegal. Uh, You know, it's still criminalized. And in Mexico, it's locally, you have to locally figure out, you know, which state does what, and some are, you know, early and some are late term or whatever. And uh, it's really crazy. So, so what Catholics are doing in these in these countries is that they're looking at someone like Trump and they're like, hey, like he's our guy because he's staunchly pro life, right? Even though he aborted, you know, I don't know how many kids that he had with porn stars or whatever the fuck, right? <laughs> he's on his third marriage. You are mad, you're mad <laughs>
1: at the president of the United States because he
2: fucks? Wow, yeah. that's a real podcast. There's a, fucking yeah. point. There's, a um, there's a meme that just came out yesterday that or uh, recently with Melania Trump saying like. You know, Donald Trump will never leave you. And then at the bottom, like, you know, they put, you know, coming from his third wife. Right. Like it's like um, it's really crazy because they're really taking to Donald Trump on the pro-life issue. But I think the pro-life issue is really just a way to try to oppress these feminist movements. And I think racism is a huge part of this because these elite Catholic conservatives are white. They're in the elites of society. They're predominantly white or European descendants and then you know the the feminists are you know mixed race indigenous black and so there's a lot of racism imbued into this and you know it's gotten to a point it's it's it's, it's disgusting really we like this year alone you know i think i've talked to rob about this you know and some of our friends from school but you know even some of my own relatives like will post stuff on facebook that's just like oh my god like you know memes and images of trump like you know, whisking babies away from the jaws of death. And you look at like, you know, they put Hillary Clinton's face on the devil. And it's just
1: like this horrible, you know, horrible,
2: really right-wing shit that's like it gets really spread into these, um, you know, social media circles. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think there's kind of a couple of things happening here. I think the the current Pope uh, is not popular with conservative Latin American Catholics. I think the rise of the left in Latin America is drawing people to uh, conservatism. And I think Trumpism is part of this too, because Trumpism taps into that religious conservatism, adds those dimensions of racism to it, and it makes it okay and it makes it totally okay. So I think um, I think that's where it is now. Uh, I do think I agree with Nick that churches are really politicized now and really divided. Uh, you know, not all Catholics uh vote Republican, but a lot of them do. I would say, definitely, in the last election, the majority of them voted for Trump. I'd be interesting to see how that. You know, pans down this year with Biden. I still think probably a lot of them will vote for Trump. But Biden, being a Catholic, you know, Biden's not a real Catholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's we are true. Attempting
0: to promote pan-Catholicism <laughs> with this podcast, a little Italian, and, uh, yeah, Mexican Catholicism, and Joe Biden is here yeah. to lead the Catholic coalition of the future. No, you know who's gonna, you, know, you know who I love though Andrew Cuomo. Man, I'm gonna I'm name dropping <laughs> that right now. He got up. Nobody your governor, was doing your governor.
2: Yeah, man. Nobody was doing shit. Nobody was doing shit when the kids were getting separated at the border. And Andrew Cuomo stands in this podium on a Catholic church, right? And he says, you know, start with me, right? I'm the son of an immigrant, the son of an immigrant, blah, 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 And I'm like, you know, he's just, maybe he's grandstanding or whatever, but... He's got the you know, John Paul
0: II swag. You
2: know? <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like, you know, uh, a lot of these Democrat Catholics are, you know, they're kind of weak sauce. I mean, Democrats are just weak sauce all around, but uh, they're not really doing anything. And that's why I think the Republicans have really uh you know claimed the religious uh mantle and i think to nick's point i think that's why a lot of catholics today like they behave and they vote like they're these evangelical protestants
1: but they're not right i mean and so yeah you're not you'll never like you'll never be a part yeah. of the crew like you just won't they still hate Catholics. <laughs> they're, they're still, still gonna, gonna see like right exactly and they're, and they're getting up
2: and they're defending amy coney barrett and they're like oh all well, this anti-catholic vitriol you know i haven't seen this since john kennedy i'm like you fucking hate john kennedy like what are you talking about like you fucking hate john kennedy like don't come up here and tell us that you you know you love jack kennedy and that amy coney barrett is fucking jack kennedy like you hated the kennedys right so i don't know i well, think you it's- just
0: mentioned here i just want to put the context yeah. we're recording this on a wednesday a little early for us this week. Oh, week. Jesus.
1: Yeah. tomorrow or tomorrow, tomorrow right. they're voting on her tomorrow and she'll yeah. probably yeah, get confirmed so yeah by the
0: time you listen to this she. Might be already well, on the The first Catholic
1: Supreme Court justice. <laughs> no, they're all Catholic. No, okay, they're a bunch of Catholics. No, you yeah, know, yeah. Alito is too, as well. And they're all, I yeah. mean, all the. Sotomayor is also Catholic. Of Sotomayor. Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Even is Sotomayor funny. is Catholic. Is <laughs> Isn't Catholic? Is. Wait, he's Catholic? Yeah, they're all Catholic. What?
0: Which is funny because. Yeah, the right wing that's in the U.S. That's it's what, what you do. That's what you do. Oh, no, no, no but period. they've period. <laughs> never read a book. All right, so no, We gotta find six Catholic Yeah, yeah. Conservatives <laughs> <laughs> to lead us. <laughs> figured it out. You gotta, you gotta. Yeah, that's the Pope. American
1: popes. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta. You know, uh, the Supreme Court is just like the uh, the sandbox where the Catholics are allowed to play. <laughs> if they. Think if they fucking think about ending up in the executive branch of government, yeah. that's fucking in it. the We're presidency. Yeah, exactly. Like John Roberts, he's like, do you know
0: what would happen? We have to <laughs> keep under
1: control. Yeah, we got to keep I them just, all over there in the in the spoon uh, plate, Yeah, yeah. I, all yeah. I have to say is that then you know I am forming then the first and uh, maybe the best um, American uh, uh, Catholic Communist Party. You can join me, <laughs> or, uh, dude. That'd be will, awesome. Uh, I mean it is the only logical way to well, be like, You brought it up.
0: I mean, like I said it's maybe just an internet thing, but on my Twitter there are people who like I would say usually like just people raised Catholic who are like yeah, are socialist and try and 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 claim a kind of social catholicism. Yeah. And then on the other side there are people who usually didn't grow up Catholic who see in the Catholic Church and the iconography some kind of like like I'm talking about like alt right yeah, yeah, yeah. like Pepe yeah. kids who are like be just become Catholic cuz like, <laughs> oh,
1: they are like they love yeah, the yeah, tradition. They love the tradition. The... Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you grew up with Catholicism, it's not I mean, there are way worse things to grow up as. Is the Catholic exactly. Church a weird fucking institution absolutely? Are the teachings are the <laughs> overall overwhelming majority of the things that the Catholic Church teaches you good things that then are you know, will lead to uh 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 you know the, the fall into some version of a social liberation theory. Yeah, they like just absolutely, and if you yeah, don't take sure. that like, if you don't take that out of it, like, and uh, I don't like like the, the, just the thing with like immigration and whatnot to me as being like from like how they're so conservative and they just kind of like they don't even like question it. Um, it's so weird to me because even like I remember like ten years ago or so going to church that then like the church I went to had a very Open stance about immigration you know that oh, that was like hey you know wait what um, was this Nick
2: what's what city was this
1: This isn't Phoenix.
2: Oh, so, oh God! Yeah,
1: Jesus. So you have you have then the sense of that the the Catholic Church was actually going against than what a lot of its own people in the um like the the parish that then I was a part of was going against than what a lot of than the the churchgoers thought because they were saying that then like yeah. okay you know like these, <clears throat> like like, board in, like the border detention things are against you know what we believe uh deportations are against what we believe this and that and that and. I would be very curious now about what they're saying because it has like these, all these issues have kind of just been, been, yeah, you know, like kind of packed into this like very pro Trump sort of thing that they pro like, I don't know. It, it, it weirds, like just from my own personal perspective, it really weirds me out that my mom, who is very, very, very devout, uh, she's a very devout Catholic. Um, is like has these insane positions when it comes to, like, you know, border yeah. treatment and stuff like that. And I well, for, yeah. I think a majority of Americans is probably this, a similar thing. But well. that's the thing. But that's the thing. It's like, that's
2: what I was saying. It's like Trump and especially the pro life issue. Cause that's, cause that's yeah. when you ask them, why are you voting for Trump? They're like, oh, cause he's pro life. Like that's what a lot of Catholics say. Like, you know, even, you know, my sister who is Catholic and she has such a hard time with her friends. Cause, She's she's voting for Biden and she votes for Democrats, but all her friends are like just these really nasty Republicans. And it's like, why? And it's like, oh, because it's pro-life and this and that. And they keep coming back to the pro-life issue. But really, like Trump, what he's doing, I mean, it's not it's not even about abortion. Like, he gives people permission, and this is Catholics or anybody. He gives people permission to like voice like their deepest, most visceral, most awful like hatred and racism. And so, I mean. No offense to your mom or anybody, but just I feel like what no, happens with a fine. lot of
1: <laughs> what happens with a lot of like, I wouldn't have brought my mom up in this if it wasn't if it wasn't fair games. So. I hope she's not listening to this podcast, but absolutely not. I've never told my mom the name of my show. So yeah, All Don't I'm saying is mom, what, what Trump is doing role.
2: is that he, he allows for people to like all that stuff that they would never say in public. And that they would never express to even, like, their kids or their relatives. He gives them a vehicle where, like, it makes it okay. And so part of it, I'm sure, I mean, the topic of immigration, a lot of it is just racism. It's like, oh, these immigrants, Even oh, if you're yeah, Italian, yeah. even if you're this, it's like, well, you know, they're dirty and they're this and that. And so it's Italians like. Italians who aren't racist? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just like, I don't know. I feel like, uh, yeah, I think that's what the Trump phenomenon is about. It's really just, like, giving people permission to, like just tap into that. One of my uh, professors in grad school, she did a lecture on this when he was first elected and she she works on religious studies, actually, of all things. And her name is Katie Lofton. She's she's great. She wrote a really good book about Oprah as like a religious figure in American culture and like American consumerism as religion. And um, she was comparing Trump to a video game character and saying how like Trump is an avatar that like makes it okay for you to like hit your wife Or punch your boss or curse out people on the street, you know? And it's just like, it's true. I mean, I think that's what it's getting into. And unfortunately, I think Catholicism has a lot of really, you know, these very impulses that we're talking about. I mean, we mentioned them when we talked about fascism. There's a lot of these impulses in Catholicism. And Trump is just like allowing them. Because you're right. I mean, if you listen to what's actually being said, and if you really take the messages, like this should be like... I mean Jesus was a socialist Jew, right? Like he was an immigrant. He was a fucking immigrant, right? But people don't listen to it and they just get really wrapped up into like all this other bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So Yeah. Um
0: I'll say let's do one last round if anyone has any final thoughts
1: or comments. Because I am good. I just just j- join, yeah, yeah. My, join my join my, my Catholic Communist Party. That's <laughs> what I asked for. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> I um because I
0: tried to um articulate this on our episode, Ricky. And it's just yeah. there's some connection here between you mentioned the like uh, anti-abortion movement has been so key yeah. in uh, yeah kind of this right-wing organization. At the same time, there's this feeling now of kind of what you described with the millenarianism of the 1920s and 1930s that it's the end of the For world. Sure. I mean, literally, if you take the science of climate change seriously, it seems like the fucking yeah. end of the world. And you have people, and at the same time, you have a social structure. We all we talk about the end of history a lot. You have a social structure which gives people no tools. To think through the world changing you know right and i don't think that and i think what's useful about religion and i say this as someone who grew up non-religious like as like the the, the peak american protestantism where you just don't have anything you're like trapped completely <laughs> you're, you're trapped in the like <laughs> thinking and ideology but like it's like you don't even know it's the ideology. Like at least you don't, you're not even given any rituals or shit to like contextualize <laughs> it. You're just like that's the world. But I mean, that that captures the end of history feeling, right? Because it's like yeah. all of these systems of you know of capitalism or, or how the world works today is just baked in and, and naturalized. It's not it's not uh, historicized or contextualized. And I think that what I see in religion, uh, when in organized religion, as an outsider, is at least the ability to think through questions of like fucking existence right which is what a lot of political movements and nascent socialist movements in the u.s or wherever are trying to do they're trying to think like it sounds so cringe sometimes when people are like oh we're gonna we're gonna build a fully automated luxury space communism the reason it sounds you need you need catholicism in order to get the 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 reason it sounds (laughs) how the fuck do you think about the future as you know as human beings it's a hard question and it seems to me that like This is why like anti abortion, like the pro-life thing in particular is a core thing because it's like, okay, but we have to hold on to life somehow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like I just think for any political movement and going back to what Mark said and not even in the sense that it must be immediately abolished. But the the language of religion must be thought through in any kind of political movement because it represents what, you know. What is the fucking what are we all doing? like why even have a better political
1: system and and stuff like that
0: so i I don't know even know what I think about that, but you guys all ju- you guys just reminded me of yeah of, of my thoughts on this i
1: ju- I think just to like like i mean uh we we mentioned this much earlier in the show of I think that that's the perfect example to then how then Catholicism was just used then as this vehicle for a lot of movements i mean latin america like is was very much um as as Ricky mentioned, there wasn't like one cohesive conservative line. There were a lot of priests right. who who did become, you know, socialist or communist. It's actually weirdly illustrated really well in the first season of Narcos. Oh yeah. If you see, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, the yeah. First three or four episodes, there's like all these communist nuns who were helping um, against the CIA and whatnot. Yeah. So this is, I mean like uh, one of the most famous figures, although he wasn't explicitly communist was still at least like socialist like, uh, in terms of, of, of his view of the world. It was like Oscar Romero, who was murdered by uh, a CIA death squad. So there was, regardless of if they knew it as communism or not, or whatever it was, like there was there there, there was a factor that then did allow this to become, I would say, a cohesive, not maybe cohesive, but a liberation theory that then, the, and I think that you're, the example of luxury space communism is the best because it's so out there and, and ridiculous. But you know being a good person and building for your community is something that then that you can actualize in that moment and Catholicism allowed this for a lot of people yeah. and i think that then although yes the european version of it and the thing like the 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 trad reaction is right wing um there is something that then i would say is like inherently in the moment and material about yeah. this as well that we also have like like we can't just you know put it in 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 one you know, basket and say that then it's all reactionary and fascist because that's just historically inaccurate. So I think you're, that's a perfect point to make, Rob. Thank you. Yeah,
2: I think uh, just to close it out, I think one thought that I'll pose is that uh, if you break down religion to like its barest bones, which is basically a set of ideologies and a set of rituals, uh, you know, political movements, even secular political movements, are religious in some ways. Uh, there's a set of ideologies that you ascribe to, right? There's. I literally a set of, have
1: a painting of Lenin in my room. Like, <laughs> it's not yeah, ironic. Yeah.
2: There's, you know, a set of ideologies that you ascribe to. There's a set of rituals that you perform, whether that's voting, whether that's marching, whether that is, you know, I mean, we talked about fascism. There's a lot of rituals in fascism. And there's a cult of personality. There's people who get deified in the political canon, right? I mean, we talked about Kennedy. We talked about, right? There's people who are the saints mm-hmm. of, you know, nation states, So, uh, I think religion uh, is permeating everything. Even secular politics is religious. I mean, it comes from a Protestant religious tradition. So, uh, I think religion and politics, like I think it's natural for them to communicate in the ways that we're seeing. However, I think what we're seeing with Catholicism is not necessarily religious, but I would call it more like Fundamentalist, like that's what it really feels like to me. It feels Sharia, like a, if you will, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like it just feels like it's very, it's 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 a very narrow view of what religion actually is, not just ideologically speaking, but what it can actually do for people. And so it's like it gets pigeonholed into like religion is what tells us how to think of these social issues, whether it's abortion or whatever. I mean, that's what the ideologies tell you, but religion is also about a bigger, you know, if you think about religion globally, not just Christianity, but it's about what we were saying, right? Rob and I were saying, and you were saying at the beginning, it's like, you know, how to deal with the end of the world, how to deal with existential questions, how to deal with your role as an individual in the universe and the world and society. So I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the co-option of religion for these very narrow fundamentalist aims. And so I think that's what's happening in the U.S. I think it's happening in other parts of the world, and it's not even Catholics. I mean, this started with Reagan, you know, in the 80s. It started in the, you know, evangelical movement. It started before that. So I think moving forward, I think there needs to be a reclaiming of religion for what it actually is supposed to do and what it actually is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this conservative, you know, method of surveillance. It's supposed to be some sort of some tool of empowerment. I mean, that's ideally what it was supposed to be about, right? Think about Jesus. It was about empowering people. It was about some religions talk about mobilizing people all of them talk about you know the poor and you know nobody here is like hey like you know be like this rich guy you know who is like you know on his third marriage and whatever like and so that's the The thing i feel like 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 it's just yeah yeah, definitely (laughs) (laughs) capitalism is a religion that is about that right and so um and so that's the thing i think uh i think when we move forward (laughs) Uh, I'd be interesting to see. I'd be interested in seeing if these questions are reformulated in some way, or as Rob and I discussed in our episode on fascism, if this is just a death drive that's taking us into a downward spiral, and there's just not going to be anything but these, you know, superficial attacks on other people, and really no sort of thorough engagement in politics or religion for that matter. So we'll see what happens, but. Um, I
0: don't know. On that point, <laughs> um, we, uh, Ricky and I, plan to be live for one yeah. potential uh, de- downward death spiral of, <laughs> in, in the coming weeks. I'm um, uh, speaking specifically of it's November third, yes. election night in the U S. Yeah, that's the third. The the moment we've all been waiting for. Honestly, I fucking knows what'll happen. Um, yeah. Ricky and I will be live on the. Uh, it's going to be I don't know a Cornish spati, The revolution will not be televised. Collab. I don't Link know. Up. We might have a sounds good. We might have some some signs in the background or something. I will be if everything goes smoothly. I will be in Ricky's living room where he I see him sitting right now. On, That'd on be the cool. We're yeah, we're here. Uh, and we will be streaming. Yeah, just live reaction. We'll be watching CNN or something. Um, Jeff Tubin knows. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're going try to avoid a, a, a Tubin. Jeff Tubin's gonna
2: live stream from his basement, and we're gonna watch it.
0: <laughs> we, um, yeah. So that's going to be. I don't know when we're going to start. Uh, more information to come. Six p.m., seven p.m. I don't know. Whenever we're going to be watching TV, so. so start
2: coming in on. I like guess eight, whenever returns. Eastern. Yeah, yeah eight, we eight. can start on that. time And we'll Maybe go until
0: whenever we. I don't know. Well, whenever well, we can't take it Rob anymore. has
2: a lot of more nocturnal energy than I do. So Rob can go until like <laughs> seven in the morning. I'm probably going to go until like one a.m. because <laughs> I'm just like so tired. Yeah. Anyway
0: yeah we're so the 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 lineup isn't isn't finalized we're gonna take call-ins i think nick might call in anyone else any, any yeah. of our friends listening let us know if you want to call in um that is going to be again on <laughs> twitch.tv slash corner november 3rd starting around i don't know seven or eight eastern time that's one or two a.m here in berlin but you know i know some of you stay up late and yeah. yeah, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about that? I hope you tune in. If you like this analysis, uh, there'll be much more of that. If you ask questions in chat about Catholicism, we will answer that. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Yeah. What, what's your favorite prayer? Who's your favorite saint?
2: <laughs> the scene <19th> Creed, right? <laughs> so um, I just want to say thank you to both of you guys for hosting me here. It was really fun. Uh, yeah, is there actually... Anything
0: else you want to plug? By the way, stuff you're working on. Um...
2: Uh, well, I'm working on an article right now on uh, which hopefully will be published by the end of the year. It's on white supremacy in Mexico, whiteness, and how it intersects with actually intersects with religious conservatism and pro-Americanism and anti-indigenous uh, violence. So, and I do talk about Trump and I do talk about this pro-life stuff that we mentioned in the conversation. So, you know, I can uh, definitely. Once it's out, hopefully, uh, you know, I can plug it in the description for our podcast or anywhere. Uh, sure. get people to sure. read about it. I think it'd be really interesting. And, uh, but yeah, I just want to thank you both for hosting me. I thought that was really fun. I've never laughed so much talking about Catholicism. It was really a fun time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, apologies to Nick's mother if I offended you. I didn't mean to. If you're... <laughs> and also just, uh, yeah, you know, just, again, uh, looking forward to getting as many viewers or listeners into our live stream and, you know, to encourage everybody to keep listening to this podcast and our podcast. Cause I think it'd be great to just, you know, simultaneously plug both
1: of our, of our podcasts.
0: For sure.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm not going to plug anything. So uh, on that note, uh, we will see you all the next week. Thank you once again, Ricky for being on. I had a wonderful time. It was fun. Uh, I learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Thank you hey. both. Hey, uh, peace. Bye bye. Thanks.